You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now, um, I have put together in the past a project I call the Project of Elimination. There's certain things that keep us stuck. And um, I'm going to, as we do this little coach's corner, go through a bunch of different tools that you might want to just get rid of, things you just need to declutter out of your head. Think of it as like a spring cleaning, you know, as as spring comes uh, and winter's done, it's time to clean out the house. Back in the day, remember, they'd bring out the rugs and they'd beat up their rugs to get all the dust out of them. It's time to spring clean. Let me give you a few things I'd suggest that you start to, to let go of. Number one, let go of the stories that don't serve you. How many times have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about, but we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not – I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them I'm – a, I'm a grandpa that will play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. <laughs> People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it, it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. There's, they're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. It's called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? 
you're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I, I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, you don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray and then i got to pray. And Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident. Uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, oversch- do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. So I wanted to talk about how we can learn to persuade people, how we can influence others, um, and get people to believe in your cause without polarizing it. Because you, you can't have a gun a discussion about guns, it seems like, without it moving very quickly to the extremes, as it does on so many other issues in our culture, in our world. Um, for example, on terrorism and, and the discussions of, and war and going you know, to Iraq and, um, and abortion. But, but in, in the end, we, we look at the politicians, they're extreme, they're going to be extreme. They have to be extreme. They're, they have to placate and, and do what they've got to do to, their, to get elected. But we don't, right? So we we are the people that are eventually going to elect these politicians and eventually are going to actually create the change like State Senator Todd Weiler we just talked to. Um, here's here's my view. The power is, is really in our hands to change these debates, these discussions. Um, we can change them in our local, you know, meetings on the local level, but we can also just change them in our conversations around the dinner table. So – there's power and in and an ability for each of us to persuade people to be more open-minded, but you gotta you gotta kind of follow some principles. I wouldn't just say like Trump did. You know, Hillary, if she did, believes that guns are so dangerous, then her security team needs to lose all their guns. Okay, that, I mean it's a great point, Don. You, you nailed it. Donald Trump said that. The same is also true. If guns are so safe, Donald then everybody in your meetings and rallies should have their guns by their side. Now, can you imagine a three, ten, or three to 10,000-person rally with Donald Trump with 10,000 guns in the room? See, that's just ludicrous. It's crazy because we can't trust the few. There's just a few in the room that can't be trusted. 
And there's just a few in the room that the security guards around Hillary Clinton are protecting Hillary from. So if you notice, we're not fighting an argument of everyone. We're fighting an argument of just the few. But those are the things we're not talking about. We're not talking about just those few. And we're always trying to protect our rights. So listen, here's some principles for how to persuade other people to believe in more in what in your cause. First, you got to know what you believe. Know what you believe. But don't just know what you believe because, you know, you, you've got the talking points from, um, you know, the NRA or from, you know, the Democratic anti-gun movement. Know what you believe truly. What are the principles, for example, that of why you want to have a gun in your home? Is it safety? What else is it? Is it is it hobby to go hunting? Is it collection? You have so many different reasons. But why do you believe in what you believe? What are your principles for why you believe in pro-life or pro-choice? Understand your beliefs. And don't just understand them because somebody talked to you about them. I, for example, um, I, I was very pro-death penalty for a long time. And now I'm just kind of – I'm neutral. <laughs> I've moved to neutral by simply reading and studying more about how many innocent people are also being killed. And, you know, it scares me that we could make mistakes on the death penalty. And it's moved me back to center um, when I may have been more extreme in one way or another. But it came because I really dug deep to find out, is that something I actually believe or is that just one of the things that my party believes? Right. So know what you believe. And before you try to convince everyone else of something, be informed and know what you believe. And please get more informed than just the local media. Right. Or the national media or just this one position. Understand both positions of the argument. Another thing you could do is show passion, not obsession. Nothing on earth is a better attractor than someone that's passionate. But also nothing is a greater repellent than a person that is an obsessed that's obsessed. So the guy that has to show up at a parade with, a, with an automatic rifle because he can, that's obsessive. That's not healthy. And it's, it's also not respectful to others. You can – if your obsession crushes everyone else's respect of others, then you're in trouble. You can be passionate about your guns and highly informed. But you don't need to become extreme. Moderation. Moderation in all things. The next rule is be the billboard. What I mean by that is very simply, we are always the best demonstration of what we believe in. We always are the the one. We're the demonstrator. We're the best model. We're the best billboard of what we believe in. So if you want to influence people, then be the billboard. And the interesting thing about like billboard marketing is it's really about putting it up there and you want to keep your billboard up for a while or a long time because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. When people see that you're an open-minded person and informed about your views and able to hear other people's views, that billboard shows that you're trustworthy on this topic. If you could start showing that you're open-minded to hearing everyone else's opinion, which to me that town hall started to do for the president, I think, and it's why I think it would be powerful for the NRA to show that they're open-minded to hearing as well. Um, then we could have some powerful discussions. But we are always the billboard. So if you really want to influence another human, be open to what others are saying. And then last but not least to persuasion, always think about the people, not the persuasion. 
the people are what matters. And in the end, it's going to be the people that will make the decisions. It will be the people that will will facilitate and, and make it easier for you to to have the you know your goals achieved, or it will be the people that will fight against it. We have so many people in our culture, in our country today, fighting um, each other because no one's talking or thinking about the actual people involved. They're just trying to get their point across. Uh, when you hear a story like we heard earlier in the show of a, a, a girl shooting accidentally her sister to death with her father's shotgun that he left out after a hunt, that's a people story. That should move you. That should actually at least make your heart open up a little bit. And you shouldn't just shut that down just so you can go back to your po- – yeah, but he should still have the right to have a gun. Sure, he should. We don't have to be pro-gun or anti-gun. We can be both. It's just the situation and how it impacts the people. Persuasion, folks. Think of people, not persuasion. Be the billboard. Show passion, not obsession. And truly know what you believe. That's how you influence people. Not just arguing louder or threatening them with, you know, repercussions. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite books ever. Hardest book to read I've ever experienced. Like, literally, I would read a page a day. But it was by Martin Buber, um, who was uh, a philosopher. And the book is called I and Thou. It was first published in 1923. But it reminds me of um, the power of a relationship. And he in the book... Uh, Martin Buber teaches that there's there's two ways to kind of orient yourself to other people. As an I-it, meaning I, I'm the I, and you are an it, an object, separate from me. Or I can orient towards you as an I-thou. And a thou meaning I'm in a relationship with you that um, that is, is sacred. That's the thou, right? So that's the terminology you'd use to address a God in your prayer, perhaps. So when we think about how we deal with the people around us, do you look at people as an it, as a Republican or a Democrat, as a male or a female, as a a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew? How do you orient to people? Do you orient by their color? Do you orient by their degree? And uh, Martin Buber talks about the fact that Eventually, our healthiest relationships are where we see people as a thou, an I-thou relationship where I revere you, I respect you. And if I, if I see you as a thou, then there's something holy about you. Uh, Emerson used to teach that there's a divine spark inside of each one of us. And that divine spark has to be honored. It has to be upheld. Which means I've got to be careful how I talk about you, right? I've got to be careful what I say or I don't say. I need to be willing to listen to what you are saying because you are special. You're not just a thing or an it, which is why our labels in our world are – it's so uh, possibly devastating because the minute I've labeled you, you become an it for me. Even, by the way, with our children, we can make our children an it, an object because they're our children, right? That's my daughter, And I could end up seeing her as an it instead of a thou. So it's just powerful to start realizing that between each one of us, there's a relationship. And how I look at you depends on how, in the end, I will treat you. 
And wouldn't it be powerful if we could see the divine spark in everyone around us? How would that change the dialogue of our candidates? How would it change the dialogue in our families if we could just see that there's a divinity inside of each and every one of us? Powerful, powerful stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. Fast, but uh, I think profound. We'll take a break. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. things that should never have happened to me in public. You know, it's interesting how our brains work, right? Sometimes you can't remember your own kids' names or how to make your favorite recipe, but you somehow remember the time you tripped in front of your crush or left your zipper down during a presentation. It seems like the things we want to most forget are often the things that are so deeply ingrained in our brains. So uh, how do we get rid of some of these embarrassing moments out of our head Well, who better to teach us than our producer, Leanna Tan, will help us learn how to do that by sharing with us five of her own embarrassing moments. You know, I've been getting some pretty sleepless nights lately, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I mean, I'm trying to eat healthy, manage my time, and go to bed at a decent hour, but then I thought, what if I have post-traumatic stress disorder? I immediately started Googling it, and Mayo Clinic taught me that post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental health condition that's triggered by a terrifying event, either experiencing it or witnessing it. Symptoms may include flashbacks, nightmares, and severe anxiety, as well as uncontrollable thoughts about the event. That explains a lot. I mean, usually this is a pretty serious thing that affects war veterans or victims of abuse, but I think I've developed it from experiencing Pretty scarring, embarrassing moments. Ugh. But then I read that one of the best methods of treatment is to talk about my traumatic events to a group of people. I gotta do it. So I guess here it goes. Five things that should have never happened to me in public, but did. Number one, going to the city fair with my older sister and having her suddenly pretend she had a mental disability and couldn't speak any English except the word food at the top of her lungs. Every few seconds until I found her some dinner. What was I supposed to do? I grudgingly find her food or I endure everyone's glares as they judge me for not taking care of my poor disabled sister. And I must say, I do not condone her actions. Number two, being convinced to randomly break into song and dance in the middle of Walmart. Yes, one moment the innocent shoppers were enjoying their quiet Walmart experience. And the next moment, we were grabbing wrapping paper rolls and massive candy canes and singing and dancing in synchronization. At the time, I thought I was bringing the world a holly jolly Christmas. But now I realize I was sparring their memories for life. I'm sure all those mobile phone videos are still in the depths of YouTube somewhere. Keep singing! Number three, taking choir warm-ups so seriously, I pulled a muscle and had to call my mom to take me home. No, no, our junior high choir was not that intense. We, like every other normal choir, liked to roll our necks and uh, shake out our shoulders before singing. Pretty harmless stuff. But of course, the only person who could manage to find a way to injure themselves during choir warm-ups was me. Let me tell you, it was a long walk of shame holding my pulled neck muscle all the way to the principal's office. (sighs) Number four. 
being dressed as a Christmas elf and put in front of a camera broadcasting to an entire city of elementary kids. Nope, I had no idea what I was doing. But duty calls when your boss points you out at a work meeting an hour before air. I have to admit, my elf costume was pretty sad. Here's my lifelong more like I belonged in Neverland than the North Pole. I don't know which one was more traumatizing, being in bright green tights in front of hundreds of people, or being called Elf Liana by the entire population of grade school kids any time I went out in public. And then, having to endure it, every year I go home for Christmas. And time would heal Number 5. Accidentally pushing the emergency alarm button in a Japanese restroom at a train stop. In my defense, there are so many buttons in Japanese bathrooms. I was in a rush and couldn't figure out which was the right one, so I just decided to push all of them. And then of course was completely alarmed when the door slid open and I was greeted by a breathless security officer and many foreign faces blankly staring at me. Whoops. Phew. You know what? Actually, I do feel better. So, just know, if you've experienced any traumatizingly embarrassing stories, you're not alone. It helps to just get it out there in the open. It might not cure having a crazy older sister who gets a weird sense of pleasure out of your embarrassment. Food! But it can help with the flashbacks, the nightmares, and the severe anxiety. <sighs> I think this means that I'll be sleeping a lot more peacefully tonight. Great. Well... I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. Americans are being killed in car crashes every year. In uh, in fact, in 2012 alone, 32,000 people were killed in car uh, and automobile accidents. New studies show that 94% of the crashes that cause injuries and fatalities are attributable, attributable to human choice or error. That leads to a fascinating question that deserves some attention. Could driving your own car become as socially frowned upon as other risky habits like smoking? When Once we have all this, these uh, self-driving cars and it's decreasing the, uh, the death rate on the roads, when you choose to drive your own car, it's, uh, it's a pretty detrimental behavior, isn't it? Well, our next guest, Dr. Andrew Maynard, is a professor in the School of Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. He's here to talk with us about this subject and uh, to, to give us the latest on his thinking and research. Dr. Maynard, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thanks. This is great. Thank you. Uh, I, I, to me, I'm excited for this future of self-driving cars. I love driving myself, but I also would love to sleep. Why not? Yeah. While we're at it, <laughs> so you know, I, I I feel the same. I feel the same on that morning commute. I mean, really, it's. I mean, if all of a sudden we could eliminate thirty, let's say thirty thousand deaths a year, this could be one of the greatest innovations in public health ever. 
It's quite compelling, isn't it? Um, and of course, it's fraught with difficulties. I mean, two of the biggest ones, of course, being people love to drive and they love that autonomy. Um, but also, we need to get through this transition period from where we are now with um, very, very crude self-driving cars to somewhere in the future where we've got the, the problem cracked. Right. And I guess with that and with all this innovation comes new technology or new policy making, new rules, and uh, uh, probably along with it, a lot of other you know, social issues um, about even how we shame those that still choose to drive, how we deal with people's rights who want to drive. Um, how did you personally get into to wanting to research this? So I've been involved with uh, new technologies, emerging technologies for many, many years now, looking at both the, the risks and the benefits from a social perspective. And I'm really interested in um, how you make new technologies work for society, where the glitches are, where the hurdles are, and how you get over them. Um, a, a lot of the time, it's actually the social side, which is the trickier side, rather hmm. than just getting the technology right. But, I mean, like, because you, you have to get people to do it, right? They've got to participate, right. or you end up fighting it, and then that creates other problems. That's exactly it. If you don't include people in the process of developing a new tech, you run a really high chance of them deciding they don't like it and throwing it out of the window. Is, and one of the things, I guess, that we could bring up is the, the stigma that could be attached. There is a stigma to somebody, for example, that you know, lights up a cigarette in the middle of a bus um, where, it's not, where it's not appropriate or where it's not allowed. Um, and there's this inherent uh, you know, view toward that person as being almost antisocial. Do you sense that in the future of driving and self-driving cars, will the person that wants to be a driver of their own car be seen with that same type of stigma? I think it could go that way. And if you look at smoking, it's only in recent years that that stigma has really begun to, to take hold in a, a big way. And I, to many of us working in public health, it was almost a surprise where we saw how rapidly that, that switch was. And that makes me think that we could see the same with, with driving. And of course, at the moment, there is no stigma at all. We are, we're so enamored with this idea of being able to drive ourselves. It's almost unimaginable to, to think of a world where it's seen as a bad thing to be driving your own car. But I think we'll find as these self-driving technologies improve to the extent that they are demonstrably safer than, than people driving their own cars, we may well see the same switch, especially when we begin to realize how many people's lives are going to be saved. It's Well, and I guess as part of this, it's interesting to notice how much risk we are all willing to take right now without ever thinking about it. Right, it is. I mean, those, those levels are shocking. I, roughly 32,000 people a year killed in the States, and then well over 2 million people injured um, in road crashes. And in fact, I'm living here in Arizona pretty much every day. Somewhere in the, the metro region, there is a, a very, very serious crash, number of crashes. Um, and so when you begin to look at the figures, it actually makes sense to work out how we can reduce those injuries and deaths. Hmm. And I mean, that's just that's the, the injury, the death side of it, plus the, just the social, the emotional pain of it all. But I mean, this yep. this could put insurance companies out of business. This is <laughs> this is enormous. It, it is. It, it is incredibly uh, disruptive. And there's already a little bit of chatter beginning about what happens when driving becomes so safe um, that the insurance companies have to deal with it. Um, do they put up the premiums so high that, that people can't afford it? Um, it's not clear at all what those, those additional consequences, knock-on consequences, are going to be yet. 
How, how do you see this rolling out? And I mean, I know they're doing tests. I know Google, um, Uber have self-driving cars. And every once in a while we hear a story. We know that um, Tesla has kind of an autopilot on their on their cars. We just heard that Porsche and Mercedes are now starting to work to create kind of an infrastructure for the country in uh, in these kind of fast electrical or electro uh, what is it electricity uh, refilling stations. Mm-hmm. How do how do you see this moving forward to a point where we are in a world of just self driving cars? So so we've almost reached a tipping point with uh, the technology. We're not quite there yet, but over the last probably three years, we've seen a shift from this being. Uh, a somewhat futuristic imaginary technology to it now being un- not uncommon in some places to actually see these Uber and, and Google test cars going around driving themselves. And of course, Tesla have made a, a massive splash, not only with their, um, their, their autopilot feature, but the fact that they now claim that within the next 10 years, they're going to completely revolutionize the self-driving car business. And of mm. course, that's what Uber are looking at as well. So I, I think we've just about reached that point where we're flipping from this sounding almost like science fiction to it it being normal and um, people thinking that, of course, this is what's going to happen. And because of that, I wouldn't be at all surprised if within the next 10 years or 10 years' time, we we, we see self-driving vehicles as being the norm rather than the exception. Mm. I mean, Ford just said they will have, within five years, self-driving cars at an affordable level. Yep, yep. So most of the major car companies are now investing heavily here. So Ford in the States, Volvo over in Europe, and a number of others, are in, uh, they, they've obviously recognized that this is the future of the automobile. Mm. Now, uh, I can only, and we can't even choose a president, for heaven's sakes, Andrew. So <laughs> how are we going to choose the, the way through this? And, and, and I can only imagine the pressure Congress is going to have on... Um, with from insurance companies, from individual citizens and their rights. Right, right. So, so that's really hard to, to map out at the moment. And uh, this is what I do, try and understand the, the hidden risks almost, if you like. And, and those are two great ones, the, the social pressure, the, the insurance um, pressure. I think what we may find with this is that things that are developed under the radar so fast and develop so much momentum that it's hard to resist. Um, and that's partially indicated with the, these new rules that the Department of Transportation have come out with to guide the development of self-driving cars, which are really smart regulations in that what they do is they give manufacturers a pathway towards developing really effective, safe technologies rather than blocking them. And because of this, I think by the time people wake up and realize that something big's happening, there'll already be so much momentum built up that it's very hard to resist it. No, I loved your um, insight into that because it's, it, it doesn't always seem like <laughs> that when we turn something over to the government that they do it very well. Sometimes you wonder if it's done the best way possible. But you, you do feel that uh, the Department of Transportation, they've, they've created some really powerful guidelines. Talk about what is it about their guidelines that, that is so impressive to you? Sure. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Usually uh, government regulations can be somewhat heavy-handed, basically sort of saying don't do this, don't do that, and there's a big heavy consequence if you do. 
Um, but a, a number of scholars, including myself, have begun to realize that this really doesn't work with, with new technologies and the way that society is changed it, changing. And so we've been working on an area called responsible innovation, working out what are the, the principles in which you can innovate responsibly, by which I mean you end up with stuff which is successful, it makes money, but it also doesn't harm people. And there are a number of principles there that people have been working um, around, such as anticipating what's coming along down the pike, um, actually being uh, open to new ideas rather than being rigid in your thinking, being really flexible in your thinking, and talking to everybody that's going to be potentially impacted with technology so you can develop them in a way which is responsive to what people are looking for, what people are hoping for. That's not usually what happens with big regulators. But in this case, the Department of Transportation seems to have done that. They, they seem to recognize that this is an incredibly powerful positive technology innovation and they've built this flexibility into their regulations which ensure manufacturers think deeply about the consequences of what they do but they open up ways of going forwards which allow them to be as safe and responsive as possible hmm. um, and it's, it's one of the first examples I've, I've seen certainly in the states where you've had this this really sort of responsive um, adaptable approach to regulation I mean really it's it can. It's going to help on so many other fronts. I was just thinking commerce, transportation. I mean, the trucking industry is going to be, you know, innovated. Um, plus, construction, uh, redirecting of traffic, traffic flows. Everything could become so much more integrated. It, it could. One of the things that really excites me is for you know for decades now we've lamented the loss of public transportation or the the poor quality of public transportation in the states. Um, and there's been this big push to, to get away from private transportation cars and, and develop the public transportation infrastructure. And it's failed in part because of how America has been built and this reliance on cars. What I think we'll find is with these automated technologies, we actually leapfrog this debate and we end up with a system which is a hybrid of both public and private transportation that makes all those former problems just dissolve away. Mm. And that to me is incredibly exciting. And also, it, it, is it going to become more electric cars, too, as well? I mean, a lot of these seem to yeah. be electric cars. It's Yes. Yeah, so as soon as you've got an automated system, it makes it far easier to develop a reliance on alternative fuels, electricity obviously being the, the, the clear one there. So now you've got this whole system of innovation, which leads to us as being in a very different place to where we are now. Mm. Then I then I, I always kind of look to the West. It seems like a lot of times in some of these policies, the West and the and the world we live in in the West, where you know you might it might be twenty miles from your house to the town that you live in. Um, some of these policies, some of these technologies, seem to like they might suffer a little bit. Um, do, do you sense that it will just be a big inner city thing? Is it going to be for the major metropolitan areas or? Is a lot of this technology going to transcend everywhere? You know, my guess is that it's going to uh, pretty much um, be ubiquitous. Mm. So the, the one thing we know about future sort of crystal balls is that you're always wrong with those, those predictions. Right. Um, but, but the reason I say that is I, I think you'll find as the technology begins to get a hold and people begin to realize how beneficial it is, this ability of, of having a, a vehicle that will take you where you want to be without any stress, um, with it being much safer, um, you'll see a lot of new applications develop as people get hold of it. And those are going to be relevant both to rural as well as urban areas. Hmm. 
Do you, in your article um, in the conversation, will driving your car become the socially unacceptable public health risk that smoking is today? Uh, what about the guy or the gal that just wants to drive their car? Yeah, so so th- this is a tricky one, and I, I speaking as somebody that actually really enjoys driving, uh, especially driving my stick shift. There, there's something sort of really quite pleasurable in being in control of, mm. of your own vehicle. Um, I think there will be real pushback here. So this is one of those hidden risks where you're likely to get pushback because you're taking something away from people that they consider to be important enough to fight for. Um, and I think as a society, we've got to work through that. I mean, the, the one scenario that I paint is the scenario where it becomes so socially frowned upon to drive that you push drivers underground almost, and you almost sort of have those social battles. <laughs> the hope is that there, there is a way around that, that we can actually come to a, an equitable sort of conclusion where people still have that ability to drive themselves um, if they want in areas where they're going to be safe uh, without it necessarily impacting the development of this new technology. Interesting. It's- it's almost – it's like guns in a way. You'll have to go to the gun club. You'll go to the car <laughs> right. club and you'll drive around on a racetrack. Right, 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 right. It's it's going to be a tough one though. And I, as with a lot of technologies, sometimes we have to give something up as a society mm. to, to gain something else that we really want. But that's what makes it so important that we have these conversations. Yeah. The one thing we do know that will not work is if some large body, some industry or some government agency imposes on society without us having a say in it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, because then, yeah, then there will be a backlash, it seems like. Yep. Is, I mean, what about driver's ed? What about driver's <laughs> education? These poor, these poor kids won't have to go watch all of these fatality movies and, and right. see every form of death and mangling. So, so, so doesn't, doesn't that get really interesting? Because on one hand, you can say, isn't it great? I mean, anybody can sort of get into a car without having to go through that education and, and that training. On the other hand, what happens when something fails and someone actually needs to get behind the wheel of a vehicle mm. where they've had zero training? Uh, so again, a, a hidden risk that we've really got to think about. Oh, and can you just now throw your kids in the car and send them to school in the car? Yeah. Without going yeah. with them? Um, and then what happens when something happens right. to the kids? Yeah, so I, I've thought about that on the surface. This sounds like a wonderful idea. I mean, sort of no more soccer mums. You just shut them right. in the car and they, <laughs> they get there. But who's responsible for those kids? True. And then when the car breaks down, you know, yep. yeah. What do you, wow. This is, it is, I mean, it's, it's, so this is what you do all day? Come on, Andrew. It this is, is yeah. you just sit and think all day. Well, yeah, think and, and speak to folks like yourself. Um, yeah, there's a little bit more to it than yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good gig. Is it? Um, I mean, it really is. It's it's kind of. A, I guess it's. We have to we have to start these discussions because if, if this entire industry could be up to speed in ten years, that's pretty yep. fast. It, it it is, and that really sort of puts a fine point on on not only talking about it. Um, in, places like this and, and just sort of engaging people, but working out as a society what we actually want to happen here. Mm. Does What scares you, Andrew, in all of your research and in the depth that you've gone into this, what, what keeps you up at night about such a change? That's a really good question. So um, just thinking specifically about these, these 
autonomous vehicles. Um, probably the worst case scenario is if we end up with, with technology gridlock here where we have a, a fantastic idea that could transform society for the better, but it doesn't go anywhere because it's implemented really badly. Mm. So we never ever see the benefits, but we have the downside of it almost but not quite being there. And as a result of that, you still had the road deaths, you still had the road injuries, you have a technology that's just languishing and not going anywhere. Mm. And I mean, so, so, yeah, that's horrible, I, I was, right? I was, yeah, I, I, but I was going to say, actually, so there's another thing, actually, which possibly worries me more, and that's a, a messy transition. So, so now you imagine this. You imagine that we get halfway there, um, so now you've got a mixture of self-driving and human-driven cars on the roads, but we don't quite get all the way through the transition. That, I think, is a scenario where you could actually see an increase in danger, hmm. um, simply because you know what humans are like. I, we're really quite unpredictable on the road, right. um, but we, we, we work out how to anticipate the crazy things other people are going to do. What I don't know is whether, as humans, we're going to be able to anticipate what the self-driving cars can do, and I don't know whether the self-driving car is going to be anticipating the human craziness. Oh, oh. So, 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 so this is another really worrying concern that in that transition period, things actually get more dangerous, and we've got to work out how to avoid that. Yeah, interesting, because um, I, I read an article, too, about eventually the car is going to have to decide who to hit. Yep. <laughs> right. So, I mean, and it has to make a decision. Do I hit a pedestrian or do I hit uh, another car or a motorcyclist? So, I mean, right. if it has to choose between two things, the car will have to make the choice. That, that's right. And that brings up a whole host of, of ethical issues. And that's more likely where you've got this mixture of, of human and non-human mm. um, cars, driven cars. Well, plus the cost. I mean, how do you phase out the 10-year-old car that you're letting your kids drive to school in? And now, you know, eventually, do we just not allow those cars anymore? And I mean, there's like I guess you're saying, there's so much complexity to this issue. There is. And again, this is why it's really got to be sort of worked through as a a society rather than some organization trying to impose it on us, because that's when things can can get really squirrely and really weird. Well, and policing. We we were just making jokes about it earlier about uh, if if you're in a high-tech car and you're in a high-speed chase, the police could probably disable an electric car fairly easily. (laughs) Which which sounds... Which sounds great and, until you're the person and you think that you're being law-abiding in the car and the police try right. to take control anyway. That's yeah. right. I mean, th- think of those yeah. decisions and the rights to um, – just j- yeah, your, your rights anymore and how much information could a police car actually you know, aggregate or, or accumulate about your car just technologically. I mean, it's – Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and and then, of course – I, I, of course, as soon as you're talking about the, these internet interconnected cars, and of, of course these self-driving cars are bound to be all connected to the internet, you have the question of somebody hacking them. And mm-hmm. so we already know that um, some of these self-driving cars are hackable. People have demonstrated that. Um, this is a whole new level of cybersecurity issues where somebody can get into your car take control or the, the car's control system, take control of it, mm. um, and basically take that car away from you. That is scary. Talk yep. about, yeah, terrorism. Um, right. What, uh, Andrew, as we wrap it up, what would you just suggest? Where, where do we go to stay up on this? What should we be reading if we're, if we're kind of into it, if we want to, to make sure that we're on the cutting edge of this? Sure. I, so there, I, 
just sort of keeping tabs on the, the technology via the usual Google channels. But, but there are one or two places worth um, keeping an eye on. First of all, so I, I write my column for the Conversation uh, website, uh, which is a, one of the good places just to keep up on both where the technology is going, but also where thinking is going on how we do this in a, a responsible way so we actually benefit from this. Mm. Um, there are also organizations looking at this. So, for instance, the World Economic Forum just this week has um, set up a brand-new center in San Francisco um, on what they're calling the, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is all about technology interconnectedness and addresses things such as self-driving cars. Um, and then, of course, I, I should give a, a plug to, to my own department here at Arizona State University, the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. So this, as well, is exactly what we do, both through our, our research um, and our communication um, and our um, graduate programs, as well as an undergraduate program. So, so different areas where you can really begin to get a sense of what's happening in the world around tech innovation and society um, and what, what you really ought to be aware of and how you can become part of building better solutions. Mm. Love it. Well, Dr. Andrew Maynard, thank you so much, and uh, keep up your great work. We'll see you on the road. It, uh, it really is. I, I'm excited for it. And, but again, look at all those questions. Do you just throw all your kids in the car and say, okay, go. Car, go to school and return. And what do you do when you're driving down the road and there's some empty car? <gasps> they're, wasting, they're wasting resources. Empty cars driving around? Mmm. Fun stuff, folks. This is your future. And by the way, within 10 years, holy cow, it's going to be a fun future. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, notice the theme that we seem to be seeing emerge on the show today. Lots of future discussion, lots of future issues, you know, a lot of independent needs. If you love driving your car, which I love driving my car, I'd love to be able to turn it on and off. But, uh, you know, for the safety of the whole, is it is it better that we drive our cars off-road if we want to go live dangerously, but once we are on the roads, the freeways, the paid, you know, city, state, federal roads, is that where everybody's got to be driving in the automatic mode? Mm. And what impact does that have? Are you ready to, to share the road quite literally? Are you ready to eliminate, eliminate 94% of the errors that are causing 32,000 deaths, 2 million injuries a year? I mean, all you got to do is probably talk to one person that has lost somebody in an accident and, you know, they would probably say, let's let's play the game. Let's do this thing. So be ready. There is a cost that comes when you want to, to improve safety. Uh, you might need to lose some of the freedom to be able to make every decision on your way to work. And when you think about it, most of us aren't thinking on the way to work anyway. We're listening to a great show like this that makes you not have to think. Just absorb it. Interesting future, folks. Boy, and no matter what, you're sure blessed to be living now at a time and age when, you know, an illness doesn't have to kill you. A baby can actually be taken by cesarean instead of having to die. Power. Power in the future. There is hope. We'll take a break. We'll be right back.
You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. For some of you out there that uh, that really like being the pessimist, you might be sitting here thinking, this is just all too positive. I can't stand this guy. The reality of um, what what we're finding is, and remember, for years when we were studying psychology, we would study it through kind of a lens of abnormal psychology. We would only study people that had major, you know, abnormal issues or, um, it, you know, things that they were dealing with. We would we would talk and focus about those that would hear things, those that would you know couldn't couldn't keep a job, those that were constantly having problems. But what they found out is um, when you're studying psychology, it's just as important to study not just the broken side of life, but the success side of life. What, What actually is producing results for other people? That form of study is called positive psychology. People that feel really positive in life do things differently than those that feel really negative in life. We think positivity is the norm, a lot of people would think, right? So historically, we would study the negative people, and we've got for years, you know, decades, a lot of information and theoretical approaches for how to deal with the abnormal, the negative side of of people's lives. However, People that are really have a lot of energy and excitement and joie de vivre for life, right? Um, those people do something different than those that don't have the energy, that don't have optimism, that don't have flow, don't feel like they're living in a kind of an optimal life. That's all that our last guest, Michelle Gielen, was talking about. And I've seen it change couples, for example, incredibly. When a couple comes in and talks to me, they can talk on two sides of an issue. It's the same issue, right? So if the issue is about money, which tends to be the number one thing couples say they can't talk about, you can come in and we can then spend the next hour focusing on the fact that we don't have money. And he spends the money and he buys video games and we don't even have time and money for it. And he should be working. And we talk about everything that doesn't work with the video game. Um, and that's where a lot of times the conversation goes. And we go there because we think we're going to solve the problem. That will solve it. By talking about what's broken, we will solve it. The downside to that part of the conversation, though, is it burns us out. And then all of a sudden, nobody has any more energy to deal with any more talk about money. And one way to blow that up is just then he might fight back and say, are you kidding me? Who bought a $400 purse? My video games only cost five, 50 bucks. I can buy eight video games for your purse. It's not a purse. It's a bag. And now we're fighting about purses and bags and video games. It's all on not just the negative side, but it's on the problem side is what I might call it. However, that's not what they want. What they want is the peace of financial stability. What they want is to know this person wants to know that they're safe financially. They want to know that they can talk about it and they're on the same page. 
So what I found is a lot of times you can cut through hours of fighting, hours of smoke, I call it, hours of starvation, if you would just start to listen for what they really want. When the wife brings up financial problems, what she really wants is financial peace. If she would bring financial peace as a discussion and we talk about how we can create more financial peace and safety and security and a savings account, then we can start getting into the solutions. Instead, because we're so hurt and afraid and and we are scared, we start from the negative side and then we have to dig ourselves out of the negative hole. Does that make sense? It's called, it's the appreciative approach. It's It's not being positive. It's actually just talking about what you want instead of what you don't want. If you keep talking about what you don't want, you reinforce what you don't want. And amazingly, it appears. It self-fulfills. But if what you want is financial stability, if what you want is that we're on the same page, if what you want is that I want to see that we're both productively working together to get our money and, and we're saving it. Um, I want that we have similar values financially. Have those conversations. Well, yeah, it's easy for you, but you're not married to my wife who spends like crazy. Here we go. Make sense? It's not just a bunch of positivity, I promise. It's a bunch of productivity. It's more productive to discuss real-life solutions on the, on the positive side. It works. And it does a body good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, I'm convinced that dating's it, it's different. It's not what it used to be. And that's why I think as uh, the older generation, we always look back and we're like, ah, you kids just aren't doing it quite right. But we, with technology and the advancement of technology, the advancement and uh, equalization of women in, the, in life and in the workplace... And we say they're equal, except, again, if it's still if they're still ending earning 60 cents on the dollar or less um, or I mean, sorry, 40 cents on the dollar or 30 cents on the dollar to a man, then, you know, the idea of asking a lot of guys out isn't financially (laughs) responsible. So we, we need to blow up some of these paradigms. And I guess it's one thing if you want to, you could just sit there and be mad. Uh, and and wish that the world would change so this would all fly straight for you, or you you can adjust. Um, one of my big beliefs when I talk uh, to singles groups and singles organizations, uh, certain people just kind of swim into a pool. I call it just a pool, a pool of single candidates, right? Um, and they just swim in, and they they just they're they they're good at finding what they want, and they. They're good at and socially skilled enough to make it happen, and then they swim out of the pool with their future partner, and then they'll go date, and if it doesn't work, they'll go back to the pool. But some people spend so much time in the pool that we actually forget what our goal is, right? And we we start commiserating with the pool. We start hanging out with the pool. We start making plans with the entire pool. And our belief is that we're more likely to find a, a partner if we are in the pool. But the downside to being in the pool is uh, some people are intimidated by pools of swimming singles. It's scary. I can't tell you, and I don't get it. I think men are losing confidence, and women are gaining confidence, but also won't take the initiative to go start in, you know, initiating the dates and making them happen. And... 
again, more and more. I'm, I'm working with the guy that just doesn't dare do it. And I, he goes up to a single and feels dismissed or not, not safe. I don't know how you fix that. And so I think what people do is they fall back on something that's a lot safer for them, which is an app. And, and then all of a sudden they might join into kind of more of a hookup culture where I'm not – I don't want to date you, but let's – yeah, we could go meet and maybe kiss, make out. But don't don't make me – don't make me relate to you. Don't make me find out about your family. I don't want to meet your dad. And so we got to be careful. If you're, if you're in that hookup culture, you're going to be hurt, right? And you're not necessarily learning how to create a more intimate, deep relationship. Um, the rules are changing a bit, and we got to be willing to change with them if we want to be in the game. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. How powerful is it to be able to look at your own thinking? And uh, your own language. How many times have you sat there and had somebody selling you something and you thought, wow, I do need this magical berry to, to change my life? You, you weren't even thinking about, you know, buying a timeshare. It wasn't even on your mind. Yeah, that happened to me one time when this guy sold me some beans. He said yeah. they were magic. Yeah. But they never grew. Right. Yeah. And that's when you made... Bean salad. Three no. bean salad. Five bean salad. No, they were rotten by the time I dug them back up. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, a sucker's born every day. Did you learn anything in our last segment? Um, I, I was kind of sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe listen up to this segment because maybe we can still teach you something. It's such a, it's such a battle we all fight where we want to belong. We want to, you know, we appreciate the neighbors sharing what they are sharing with us because, you know, we don't want to be left out, except sometimes we do. Do you have the ability to see through what others are doing? Do you have that insight? You don't – It. I think like uh, the good Dr. Sherman was saying earlier, we, we are all going to be a little naive. It's It's part of humanity. But you don't have to be a whole lot naive – and if you've been kicked in the head before, you don't have to offer your head for more kicking. We can start to notice the trends, notice the, the words, notice the, the content that people are sending us. And even as you listen to the political rhetoric, can, can you find an exception to what Donald Trump is saying or to what Hillary Clinton is saying? Is there an exception to this? Um. Can, can your opposition, for example, use the idea that they could build walls to keep Americans out? Yeah. If your opposition could use the exact same fact or point, then you're probably starting to just jump on the rhetoric bandwagon. I get it. It's exciting. It's powerful. It's, it's what you want to – you want to you know, be a part of a movement. You want to be a part of change. But just because it's stated strongly and factually doesn't mean it's actually factual. You can believe something, you know, very strongly. Think about it. When was the last time you actually totally believed something and then found out it not to be true? 
And it's hard because in order to do this, we have to open our minds up. And it's called critical thinking. And one of the things I think we battle as a country is we're, I don't know that we're really great yet at teaching people to be critical thinkers. Yet we live in an internet world where not being able to think critically could be to your detriment, right? Because otherwise you're just going to keep drawing back to the same well of information. And it doesn't make it one way right or wrong. It just makes it not complete. So one of the words that uh, I've been looking up and recently studying is a little bit about the word perfect or perfection, which um, I found to mean um, more than just that you are absolutely without flaw. It might also mean that you are just more complete, more whole. Whole means healthy. And a lot of our interpretations, as Dr. Sherman was talking about, most of our interpretations of other people, of other groups of people, of most of our prejudice, most of our assumptions and interpretations are not whole. They're not complete. For every uh, person, uh, Muslim, uh, you talk about in this world that is going to come in and try to kill us, I can show you a, a million exceptions. There are just as many exceptions to the rule as as you can find. So be careful. Look for whole answers, complete answers. Watch your bias and watch how strongly you argue something. Because um, many times, even though you feel you're completely right, you're going to find out you're not. There's still more you're missing. Let's open it up, broaden it up. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Inventor Thomas Edison said, Our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try to uh, just one more time. You know, America is built upon achievement of those who had true grit. But children literature expert Paige Gray warns that uh, America's near obsession with grit might have some potential pitfalls. We welcome Dr. Gray to discuss her article, What's Behind America's Insistence on Instilling Grit? into their kids. Dr. Gray, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. This We hear about grit all the time. These kids need grit. They need uh, the ability to, you know, stick to stuff. And because uh, life's hard and the more ability you have to, to, to stick to the task, the more likely you are to get through it. What Just define for us grit as as it's being used now by child psychologists and, and in all of the educators. Yeah, and and I think that's the problem is that it, it's it's so ambiguous and kind of um, baggy the way it's being used, <laughs> and, it's, it, and it's become more of um, – it, it means different things to different people. Cause I actually was trying to figure out myself, you know, how it's being used, and um, I started – as I was finishing up my my uh, my doctorate, I started all, and because I was doing childhood studies, I was particularly um, perceptive to the way children were being described in the media. And I kept, I, you know, I saw some new studies and new books and just lots of headlines with grit, grit, mm. like, huh? And so, that, so I, I just kind of like was noticing this trend and trying to figure out what what was behind that. And 
and just looking into into some of the articles and um, in recent books, it, it seems to to be a mix of things, and and a lot of it is this idea, I think, of perseverance and never giving up. Yeah. But, but that I that idea of never giving up and and how we're applying it seems to come from a certain perspective that when we try to apply it to all kids is not necessarily helpful for kids of all situations. Hmm. And be, and I guess that's because all kids are not alike, or is it is it kind of all kids meaning general categories of kids? Inner city kids in Chicago, grit might be different than suburban kids in Salt Lake City. Exactly, exactly. And just, I mean, just like when we... we try to describe what one region or one um, one state, one one country, like what's best, what works best for them, what works best for a community hmm. coming from the outside. We, you can't really do that. So, and it's the same with, with prescribing things for, for children. And I mean, and, and part of my research in childhood studies in general, and especially children's literature, where the field is especially interested in the idea of childhood because and children's literature, thinking of who who creates that adults, right? Adults, adults write children's literature. Adults prescribe, you know, in education what's best for children. But it, they're adults, <laughs> and not that we don't have experience as children, but it's they're different. And so sometimes there there becomes gaps mm. in those in those visions and those ideas of of what's really going on and what even with the, people have the best intentions and, and right. it's all good intentions. Um, but sometimes it it might um, end up putting the kids at a disadvantage. I think. Now, didn't some of this? I mean, some of this is sociolog comes from the research in sociology, right? And child development and human development and the fact. I mean, I guess there was a really popular book that came out three or four years ago about how children succeed, grit, curiosity, and the hidden power of yeah. character. It is. So I guess there's kind of a, there's an academic concept, and the word they've connected it to is grit, but it's it I guess it's just a, a person's ability to keep at something until they can accomplish it. Yeah, and I think I mean that is I mean of course like that's, this idea of perseverance. That that's kind of universal. We, we all, of course, right? We all need that. But I think, um, and, and I'm thinking of I know that. Um, there, there was talk uh, a few years ago, and continued like maybe maybe grit should be measured, and we should have it into in. And, and again, I am not, I am not an education policy person. Right. I, I do not envy the. I mean, that that's a tough job. I mean, I'm coming at this from, you know, someone in the humanities, and, and I'm just, I'm just trying to ask, get us to ask more questions about this. Mm-hmm. And and Angela Duckworth, even she's a, you know, she won a genius grant. Um, from the MacArthur Foundation a few years ago, and she um, she's an associate professor of, of psychology at, at UPenn, and you know she kind of had she had a book about grit and talked about it, and she even kind of pulled back a little bit and said maybe you know we're, we're putting the the cart before the horse somewhat in trying to measure it, mm. and not that we shouldn't, you know when pe- when kids find what makes them passionate, then they can actually achieve grit or persevere or whatever it is yeah. that they want to do, but trying to prescribe what they should be passionate about, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you need to have grit, you need to hang on, but if they don't, see, if a child, you know, in different communities, they don't see what the point is. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, I, I'm thinking about this when I, when I teach different courses um, 
in, in the college level, um, if you kind of give them these assignments and, and, you know, about writing or whatnot, but they don't see why they're doing it, you know, teaching, right. like, teaching, teaching the importance of communication and being effective, even if it's not in a composition paper um, or a literature, a literature analysis paper, those are skills that you can use to whatever um, professional goal you have. But you have to kind of make that link for them. But you, you can't just say, no, you have to be super enthusiastic and dr- driven to do the, this paper. Some just aren't going to be right because it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Re- they can't see it in relatable terms. Now, of course, you'll have some that they have to get an A, so they're going to get an A. They're going to work really hard because often some of those kids have, um, you know, for whatever reason, they they kind of have made that link. They've they've figured out what that passion is. Right. Right. Um, but, or but, it's or they're um, trying to please your parents. I mean, totally. if your if your grit is simply dedicated to pleasing your parents then you still walk away with no better sense of who you are or what you want to be with your life. You just want to please your parents. Exactly. I mean, I guess that's one of the things that, and it seems like one of the reasons grit has become so popularized is it overcomes some of the other issues we went through in the 80s where we maybe overcoddled our kids with Mm -hmm. the whole self-esteem movement, trying to get everyone, you know, make all of our kids champions and feel have an ma- amazing self-esteem. But we also maybe created s- some quitters or whatever. And so it's, it seems like that they're trying to counteract that by saying, no, you got to teach your kid to stick to it. But what I hear you saying is be careful, right? These are mm-hmm. terms and we're just we may just be swinging the pendulum th- to the other side, but it doesn't mean it's healthy either. Yeah, and, and I know some some people listen, and when I say, oh, we need to figure out how to cultivate the passion within our children, and they're like, yeah, good idea, how are we going to do that? Like, it's, yeah. it's, you know, and I'm talking from this humanities perspective, and I totally get that. And again, I'm just trying to, to get us to ask the questions and, and kind of also just think about how we, children are going to be more successful and come into their own identities when we let help them have the agency to do that rather than, um, you know, throwing upon these ideas from, you know, um, this authoritative position or this position or this adult, rather than throwing that and and it might not work for their realities. You know, some of the the skills that, you know, we, when we have this kind of blanket set of skills or education goals that we want to put across in all different communities, it, you know, if you're someone maybe in, you know, um, rural Ohio or, you know, in Appalachian communities or, you know, um, um, any kind of underserved community, some of those things aren't going to map out as, as nicely as they might in some, some mm. more well-funded right. communities. And so, so, you know, you, and again, this is, you know, teachers are, are, are all, you know, as everyone, a lot of people say, the unsung heroes so much because they have to, they're on the ground and they're doing this work and they have to work, you know, they're working one-on-one in communities and figuring out, okay, how can some of these ideas be put into terms that make, make them useful for, for these kids to, to, to understand their world? I love that. I mean, no. because it's not you're so really you're to find you're really talking about concepts are great. They they are important. They will easily thrive in certain categories, in certain areas. 
Other areas, there may be struggle, but no matter what, let's reach the people where they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, you think I've tried done some like community service work and people in community service always say, you can't just have this great idea. Like I'm going to start a book club or I'm going to start a, um, um, a women's group for this community because that's what I want to do. You know, that kind of and it's very well intentioned, but you go out in the community, and no one, no one wants to join your book club. No one wants to read, you know. Right. Well, uh, I mean, it, it might the, be the latest mystery thriller, and so that, yeah. that 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 group fails because you didn't start on the ground with the community and figure out what they wanted. That's great. I mean, because true, like think of I think of uh, an inner city mom trying to raise her child to be safe on the street, um, single parent make it without a breakfast and you want me to read a book you yeah. you want to start a book club for me um yeah it's and more you know, like for the for the child if you think about you know that child he sees his mom struggling and you know getting getting dinner on the table is hard at night um and and so he's trying to find you know extra work if he's like you know like 13 14 let's say he's trying to find extra work to help support his mom, maybe, you know, is there, is there gun violence around the house, mm. all these other factors. And he goes to school, and, and they're trying to push, oh, no, you need to stay extra hours for, you know, your essay, you know, maybe it was in high school, like your SAT prep or right. um, student council. Like, those kind of things aren't, aren't going to be important to him. No, should, should I go that, make money for my family, or yeah. should I go get SAT prep? Yeah. Yeah, and, no. and so you know, I I grew up in a you know relatively sheltered, you know middle upper class white community, and so the, I during that time, like I you know I think I would have said, oh no, you know I had a clear path, and that was you know I'm going to achieve, I'm going to do this, but I had the luxury of doing that. Yeah, exactly. And, and you had, I mean, too, you had the support, right? You had the social support, mm-hmm. you had the family support. I mean, so I really what you're saying is grit is a as a principle, you know, if it's if it's perseverance, powerful, universal, it could apply everywhere. But it's it's almost how we present it in our books, in our materials. I could even see it creating a lot of guilt on parents. So that inner city mother who's trying to just keep her boy from being shot um, now is feeling like she's not succeeding because she doesn't spend a lot of time teaching grit. Yeah, and it's, it's I just the idea of teaching it just seems it, because it's so one, it's abstract, and two, it, it just seems so very um, community, cultural, region. It's 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 so it's dependent on so many factors mm-hmm. that trying to measure or um, um, prescribe it in in clear cut terms is seems kind of um, again counterproductive. Right, like, right. And it becomes this way, we can focus on this and make ourselves, I don't want to say feel good, but like, oh, this is a good, it, it's that idea of the buzzword. It's and it, Or like the self-esteem yeah. trend of the 80s. And it's something we focus on. We can do everything on that. And it, and it sounds good. And it looks pretty. We can package it. But it's not really doing the hard work we have to do. And some of that hard, I mean, that hard work of, of facing our own systemic issues. It, it, I mean, those are hard problem. I love it. No, I, and I, I think you're you're just asking the right question. You're trying to create a dialogue so it's we don't just mandate grit and hand it down. We're speaking with um, 
Paige Marie Gray. You can find her at pagemariegray.com about uh, an article, What's Behind America's Insistence on Instilling Grit in Kids? And, and some of the things we need to watch out with really probably anything we try to hand down as a universal, it may not work in the inner city or in Appalachia the way it might work, you know, in the suburbs. So uh, powerful, I think, insight. We'll take a break, continue the discussion. When we come back, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for the last few years, the concept of grit, uh, stick-to-itiveness, perseverance, has been um, in the forefront of a lot of uh, sociologists and experts in human development about this is what we need to teach our kids. We need to teach them to stick to stuff, find their passion, um, and, and really change their lives by by focusing on that Instead of just sitting there teaching our kids that they can do no wrong, that life is easy, everything is unicorns and butterflies. And so joining us uh, is Paige Marie Gray. If you go to her website, pagemariegray.com, Dr. Paige Gray is a researcher and um, specializes in considering the intersection between children's literature and journalism. She sees a lot of stories out in the journalistic world about grit, grit, grit. Kids need grit. But she also um, understands kind of the educational model, too, that let's measure grit. Let's start making systems for grit to get our kids more, um, you know, more able to to persevere. But she wants to inject another discussion here, which is – How do we do this when grit in one part of the country is interpreted and seen so differently from grit in another part of the country? And uh, we've asked her to come on to talk to us about it. Dr. Paige Gray, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I I really – I honor you for bringing up the discussion. Sometimes these discussions are are hard to question because you don't want to – seem like you don't care about kids and grit because you do but you're you're saying be careful because like for example uh paul tuff's book grit curiosity and the hidden power of character if we throw those words out there we might be in trouble of framing character one way because character in chicago inner city or in appalachia in the mountains there um it's going to be different than in other places so how do we fix it how do we how do we communicate the concept of perseverance in a way that it fits all the cultures? That is the million dollar question. The million um, dollar. Yeah. And I, again, um, as I was hinting at earlier, I, I'm, I'm not an education policy person. So I don't the, the, the steps to actually achieve that. Um, are, are things I think we could start working toward. But first, we need to start asking these questions about how can we you know, start within the, the communities and with with just like talking to the to our children and, and hearing what what they want. Um, and again, this is this kind of goes to some of the research I do in looking at children's literature and the the construct of childhood, right? And and I think we take for granted so much that oh, childhood is this monolithic thing. 
Right. right. Everybody does it. It's a rite of passage. It's, it's a right. And, and there, I mean, but childhood in, in children's literature is children's literature is all is also this very complicated, even among scholars, very complicated thing to to define. Um, is it what children read? Is it what the, that genre of which is written? Um, what adults write towards children? Or get, it's mm. very complicated. I won't get into all of the the theories, but um, but. It really has. Instead of um, looking at, you know, what we need to be do, you know, what we want for children, what's be- what we think is best, we also have to consider who these children are, who youth, and I should say youth, you know, children, young adults, yeah, and what's working for them, where they are at that moment, and helping them to develop their own character. Because, I mean, you know, just like. And I think you have, you have kids. I, yeah. I don't have kids, but, just, but I'm sure, you know, when, when you tell kids that this is good for them and this is what they need to do, often, you know, <laughs> they're going to buckle. Right. At that, or they're, they're like, okay, dad, this is what you want for, you know, and, and they, they develop something much more, or they develop a, um, a grapple or a hold of something much more fervently if, if it comes from within them. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. Right, if, Versus coming from me and pushing it down on them, it's, yeah. if, if it could bud up inside of them, and, yeah. and, then, and then come out, yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean you, even some, oh, go, I'm sorry. Go oh ahead. no, I was just going to say in your in your article, um, what's behind America's insistence on instilling grit in kids? You you bring up really good examples of you know kind of the history of grit in literature, mm-hmm. but even the literature. I mean, what is grit? Yeah. <laughs> what is grit in, you know, the literature with Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer um, versus versus literature that um, African-American children would have been reading back in the day? Well, I mean, I can tell you. Um, so in like the, in the early 1900s, let's say, well, I should say this. Um, Amer- children's literature kind of comes into its into a thing. I mean, it, it uh, becomes its own genre more so I mean develops right alongside um, you know the growth of the middle class because people have more money to spend and uh, more and the rise of of the printing press there's more things you know we have more means it comes cheaper to print books Hmm. and and with people have more money then people like oh we can print this whole other genre of children's literature and you know we can make more money because for a lot I mean for a long time I mean people would have you know the Bible. You know this is through the early um, right. uh, 19th century. People would have the Bible and maybe some some children's primers, but not you know not like we have we have books all over the place <laughs> in, in many households because um, I mean a lot of them are cheap. Uh, even though that's you know we're going the digital route, which is a whole other conversation. But that's to say, um, adults and children would read the same books. So you'd have you know your family reading Little Women. Together, right? It wasn't. It wasn't um, special. Or it wasn't in just like one category. Oh, this is children's literature. Um, Teddy Roosevelt famously said that Little Women was one of his favorite books. Um, and but <laughs> this is all to say too that 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 genre of children's literature, which then goes to help shape. You know, we we our media reflects culture, but it also shapes it. That begins to shape ideas of childhood. But it's coming from this idea of middle upper class white white america true right yeah and but it, but it's projected onto everyone so that kind of then builds the foundation of what we think contemporary childhood is today hmm. um but all the characters 
in you know late 18th century, 19th century, they're they're white, and so you, you don't have, and this is still a problem today, where you don't have models of diversity, and and even though some young African American, I mean, they would read Alice in Wonderland, but it wasn't it wasn't something they could identify with. Right, right. That's um, no, so. So you're te- you're trying to teach them the great uh, insights, but through models, through examples, through metaphors, through actors that aren't like them. Right, and it's not in the in like the second um, decade of the of the 20th century, about 1920, 21. Um, w. E. B. Du Bois starts um, publishing the Brownies book, which was a children's publication. Um, produced by the NAACP, and it was it was meant to be a publication focused on it was it was the audience was directed for all children, but specifically African American children, and often um, children of NAACP members read it, and you know it gave them examples and models of success of African American children, mm-hmm. and and you would get um, African American writers. Um, writing about history, uh, histories of Africa, histories of the United States, um, and fiction stories and fairy tales and, and models of success. And then you had sections where children would write in um, from, from all of the country. And, um, and again, this is during the dawn of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And it was also a different period um, in America, I think, for African Americans. There, there was some, some hope. Uh, and, and later on, Things change somewhat in the history of um, of our um, like racial landscape, I would say. And this, you know, Tanahasi Coates writes about this brilliantly and talks about kind of a public policy of ghettoization, where you have um, it, because of different housing laws and the way. Uh, and this is again, I'm not an expert fully in this area, but um, the way laws turn out that we get these areas of of um, African Americans struggling, and yeah. that means in their schools, their school struggles, where it was a little bit different in in kind of the the hope of in the dawn of the, the Harlem Renaissance for for some African Americans, not all, but for some, there were there was more there were more examples. Um, mm. But then you go on through the century, and you get the war on drugs, which which changes um, some urban communities and and policies and. And so on and so forth. So, mm. so this was kind of a special time, just like this kind of 1920s. And you get things like the Brownies book. And I also do some other research on um, a, a section of the Chicago Defender, which is the um, you know landmark African American newspaper in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they had a children's section called um, the Chicago Defender Junior. And it was basically just all composed by children. And you get letters and poems yeah. and stories just all written. I mean, the whole thing was composed by children from all ages. You get children as young as eight to, you know, children almost in co- or you know, youth in college writing in and just, you know, tr- writing um, stories, poems, but also trying to create a community. Because some of them maybe were the only African American in their school, or mm-hmm. you know they they didn't see themselves reflected in the the materials they were given, and so they they wrote into this newspaper from all over the country because it was distributed nationally because it was a weekly newspaper. Um, but they found themselves in this space of of the children's column. Yeah, you know what though, I think I think you're on to I think you're on to something that the community maybe is what we need, right? The community around around this idea of grit and letting 
letting the community feed the ideas of what grit looks like and, and strengthen the ideas of what grit looks like. We so appreciate you, Dr. Paige Gray. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your time. And again, would direct everyone to Paige Marie, uh, pagemariegray.com, a great resource for all of us. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Such a great song. You got to kill him with kindness. Uh, well, let's bring in the assassin then. Her name's Caitlin Thomas. Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, Human kindness has never weakened the stamina or softened the fiber of, of free people. A nation does not have to be cruel to be tough. And yet story after story in our news today involves sadness, cruelty, even hate. So Caitlin Thomas is with us today to try to give us a new perspective on the world and to help us learn how we can make a difference in a positive way. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. You know, I was thinking the other day when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about. I mean, like I said, I'm a news media major, so I study the news all day. And sometimes I sit in the newsroom and just think, where are the happy stories? Yeah. Yeah. I know that they're out there somewhere, so I wanted to talk about those today. Good. Because are there happy stories? There are. Let's hear some. But here's why we don't hear about why? them. Or Because I want to talk about small acts of kindness, small things that we can do every day to help other people be happy. Cool. But you see, there's this lack of acknowledgement for other people that we seem to have. It's called It falls under the scene called social proof. It's this idea that... We don't want to be the first person to do something because mm. we, we all kind of just conform whether right. we like it or not. It's the reason why we had a story about that woman that was robbed and stabbed 32 times yeah. in an alley of an apartment and nobody did anything even though she was screaming for help because nobody wanted to be the first one We don't want to wanna, Right. Oh, and that's so sad. Today we're going to talk about why we should be the first ones to help and try and give some encouragement yes. to be the first one to help. I mean – Step up. Like, for example, here's my big one. When I was a kid, my family and I got in a huge car wreck. We rolled across the freeway. Our car was full. We were little kids. And my parents couldn't do anything, right? They're stuck in the car. And, like, we would have been in big trouble. We couldn't even call. We didn't have, like, cell phones or anything at that time. But we had this one lady who pulled over first thing. She's a nurse. So, right, it was in her job. Like, it was her reaction to stop. And then multiple people stopped and helped us out of the car, got a hold of an ambulance, probably saved our life because the car was leaking oil. Like, we oh, had no. Some, yeah. And so, those are the people that I think about. Hey, if she hadn't stopped, would the other people have stopped? Right. And so, let's, people, I just want to talk about that today. Okay. Because small acts of kindness can make a big impact on the world. No, absolutely. And just just a, one, just one. Just one tiny thing. Yeah, that's great. Like, I mean, you can offer to put a mom's cart away for her at the grocery mm-hmm. store if she's shopping by herself. Or, you know, stop if you can ask someone that's carrying a heavy load that looks like they could use some help. Just see if you can help them out. Um, clean the kitchen <laughs> for your spouse. Yeah. Or your mom or your dad before they get home from Do work. Do something. like Make their bed. Just follow the prompting. A lot of us think, I had to clean the kitchen. And then we think, but hold but, on, the game's on. Right, right. Or we just get distracted and we're like, I should do this, but I don't want to be mm-hmm. the initiator. Become the initiator. That's a great line. I mean, make a big deal out of birthdays. Yeah. You know, if you know one of your friends is having a bad day, just stop at the gas station on your way home, grab their favorite treat, stop by their house. Let them know you care. Ah. <sighs> 
I mean, it's that simple. What are what are, what are things people have done for you, Matt, that you can remember that made you feel good? Well, I uh, I had a lady. <laughs> that sounds so petty. Uh, I taught a class at church, and a lady brought me um, banana banana pie. Aww. And. She just thought – I just sat there and I thought listening to your lesson that that moved me and I wanted to give you something. So here's a banana pie. That's so sweet. And if she's listening, let's thank do you. it again. Yeah. I did Does say that thank you. Did that make you feel good? It, it made, made you feel like it, you it had... was so easy. Well, it made me feel good on the inside. But it also made me pie. feel good that – holy cow. All you have to do is just do the thing that you think you ought to do. Right. Just do we it. all are good by nature. Right. I think humans are good by nature. We yeah. just need to follow that. We need to not – Break out of this social proof idea and just mm-hmm. be the first one. The holidays are coming up. Yeah. I mean, at my house, we have this thing called the service star, which, you know, is representative of the the star that yeah. led the shepherds to Christ, the Christ child. And you, if you get it, it's because somebody did something nice for you. But oh, you don't know who it is in your family. So then you have to go find someone in the family to do something nice for them secretly, and then you leave them the star. And it just kind of travels I around the house that. all Christmas. What if you kept it all year? Right, we could do. You can do stuff all year. Oh, I don't know that you I want to be nice all year. <laughs> but involve your kids. Make cookies for the neighbors and have your kids help you, and then have your kids deliver it to mm-hmm. the door. Just because there doesn't need to be a reason. It, isn't it funny? Because we do that for holidays. We we do that ghost thing where we go serve yeah, your neighbors. You, you like, boo your yeah. neighbors. <laughs> but we don't, and we do it around Thanksgiving. So and Christmas, and then, but then we forget about. We're it. tired. We're tired in January. January is more we about start getting us. really gross. It's new. Well, it's because it's New Year's. It's <laughs> yeah. about our resolutions. Yeah, you've got to take care of yourself now. But I think if we if we can just think about ways that we can think outside of ourselves and mm-hmm. you know put our phones down for a second. And... That's. I think that is one of the reasons why we were talking about it earlier. Why mindfulness matters because right. you actually have to be in your head to have the thought. And a lot of us are so constantly numbing ourselves. That we're actually not present in our head or our spirit. Yeah, and sometimes we think we have this, they call it, it's like the big bad world theory, where because we watch the news all the time and all we see is bad things, we think that the whole world around us is inevitably yeah. bad. But we have to remember that the news is selling us things that they know that we, you know, stories that are interesting. Well, yeah. But it's not always an accurate reflection of the world. Isn't it funny, too? Because in the news, they tease the good story, the cute dog in the well story that's we saved the puppy. <laughs> They tease that through the whole show, but they right. then teach you the bad stuff. All they focus on yeah, is bad, bad stuff. stuff. They, they stick the fluffy dog at the but end. But what it is is you want to hear the fluffy dog. So you stay for the fluffy you dog. You stay. But then you're filled with negativity. Yeah. I mean, it's a sales. It's, it's We've got to stop it. And we can stop it. That's one reason we do the show the way we do it and tell hero stories. But what else can we do? We can just take it home, right? We can do this today at home. Today. I just go stop by a flower store, buy a flower, take it home to your wife. Just take it home to – you could take it to school and give it to every teacher and they'd die. they die. If you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person that looks starving, stop by one of the food carts. Yep. Buy them a hot buy dog. Buy them a hot dog. What does it cost you? Two bucks? Two bucks and you get a whole day full of see, warm Caitlin, fuzzies. You just did it. You did it. You just changed our whole day. I hope so. Have a good weekend. You brought us – You brought it's coming us. coming up. It's Thursday. That's right. It's, it's almost there. And no matter what, we can do this Monday through – Sunday. Kill him with kindness, everyone. Kill him with kindness. Caitlin Thomas just lifted the show. We'll take a break. Come back. Hour number three up next.